0: Well good morning everyone, good to see you here. It's uh, uh, been a hectic month for sure. I just got back from Ohio on Thursday night. I was out there visiting some churches that are part of our network. Got lots of stories, love to tell you about them. uh, But uh, probably the one that was most interesting, I went to visit one church, I've been trying to get a hold of them for several months. Showed up, beautiful building, um, immaculate lawns, all those things, nobody was in the parking lot so I assume nobody was home. But I thought, well, I'll try the door anyway, and it was opened, and I walked in, called for people, nobody was there, walked around the building, took pictures of the auditorium. Uh, They had office doors, so I thought, well, maybe someone's in there, and they didn't hear me open the door, nobody's in there, all their computer equipment's just sitting there, I'm kinda like, I don't know, I guess it's nobody's home, so I left a note saying, hey, I was here, left it right on the secretary's computer desk, Still haven't heard from them, so I don't know if they're upset with me or <laughs> what. anything has happened, so anyway. But I appreciate your prayers. I've got to catch a flight tomorrow morning at 6 a.m. to fly out to South Carolina for our executive board meeting, and I'll be back Wednesday night. And then, praise the Lord, I don't have any more trips till our pastor's retreat in November, And then, I'm, but I'm all the way here through till Christmas, and then that's another anomaly because our second grandchild is due in November. And if we don't go, someone's gonna be in serious trouble, but, you know, Um, You know, Christmas being that it's on a Sunday makes it even more complicated to pull those things off. But thrilled you're here this morning. Let me invite you to bow with me in prayer as we step into his word this morning. You know, Father, it's such a healthy thing for us to pause once in a while and just to look square into the face of Christ and just be thankful that we're alive. We live in really uncertain times, and to know that we rest and live secure in the palm of your hand, and nothing can separate us not only from your love, but from uh, your grace that has saved us, needs to bring rest to our own heart and spirit in the midst of all this chaos. Father, whether we accomplish anything, regardless of our circumstances, we know that you do not love us any less than the day that we trusted Christ. There's nothing that we will ever do, good or bad, that will ever impress you more or Uh, cause you to love us less than the day that Christ died for our sins. And so it brings a great deal of comfort and ease to our own spirit that we don't have to keep earning your favor, that we don't have to strive to convince you to keep us in the family, that Father, you are gracious and merciful and forgiving and your grace constantly provides what is necessary and sufficient for us to understand the life of Christ in us and to live godly lives. And so we have much to be thankful for. Uh, We pray that we would uh, allow your spirit to teach us this morning to take what would be a text that would be fairly inconsequential and maybe think about it a little bit in terms of our own journey and our own space and families. And we would ask that you would keep us looking into the mirror of your word so that we might see ourselves as we really are and yet take comfort that you're a God who keeps nudging us towards living the way you want us to. And so we just continue to bow in your presence. Thank you for your truth and your word. And while at first some things may not seem as relevant to where we live, we thank you that your spirit constantly is our teacher. And we thank you for this opportunity to step into your truth, and we thank you in Christ's name, amen. I was reading a story this week about Frank Sinatra, some of you that's completely out of your era and generation, but he was one of these popular singers way back uh, in the centuries that some of us grew up. And uh, he was a fantastic person, earned a ton of money, and yet as he got older he was one of these people that even though he had the philosophy in his head that he wanted to get out of the business when he was on top, He had this sort of paranoia that he wasn't going to look after his family, and so he kept pressing the envelope in terms of performances, and when he got into his 70s and 80s, he started to forget words to his own songs, and he struggled to perform well, and he just was afflicted by a number of things that made him struggle a little bit in terms of this. His daughter saw him one time at the Desert Inn in Las Vegas, and He just felt so sick by the time he finished, it was obvious to his daughter and to the audience that he was struggling and needed to be put on oxygen after the performance just to kind of recover from all the effort it took him at that age to perform on stage. Uh, His daughter, Tina, really was distressed about this, as any child would be to see someone who was so proficient and so skilled and had so many talents start to deteriorate and not really know when to step out of it. And so she finally got in front of her dad and said, Dad, you, you've got to stop this. You don't need to do this anymore. And he kept saying, well, I've got to make more money. I've got to make more money. I've got to provide for my family, and I, I, I've got to just keep doing this. And unfortunately, when uh, he uh, ended his career, uh, his family, even at years after ended up fighting over his inheritance and all the money that was still left to them. You know, as I think about that, I think of the text that we're looking at because it deals with the family of Jesus dealing with the family of God. And it's it's amazing to me in the world that we live of what destroys families. Because no matter how close-knit we are, and we all have memories being that we have now started the grandparenting season of our life and having kids. There's nothing that brings more life to life than to watch you know, a, a one-year-old walking around trying to figure out life and pick up stones and leaves and pet the dog and smile and learn how to talk. It just adds a whole dimension to life that gets back to the simpler reality that it's just nice to be alive and to be able to operate. And yet as we get older, we just seem to find more sophisticated ways to hurt ourselves and hurt others. We start fighting over each other's toys and we start grasping after things that we think are important that really don't have any eternal measure. And we start questioning our sense of purpose. And we sometimes end up withdrawing from the world because it's it's scarier and more uncertain and unnerving and so we circle the wagons and try to find our own context in which we feel safe. And the world gets more and more complicated But the text that we're gonna look at creates an interesting sliver out of that whole component of life in dealing with our own families as well as the family of God, and Jesus had to deal with that. So the text we're in is Mark chapter three. I'll read it for you and you can follow along in any way that you choose. And it simply says this, and as I said before, it may seem a little pedestrian and not really relevant, but I wanna try to touch on a few things that I think help us understand the significance of this. And Jesus' mother and his brothers came and standing outside, they sent to him and called him. And a crowd was sitting around him, being Jesus, and they said to him, Hey, your mother and your brothers are outside, they're seeking you. And he answered them and he said, Who are my mother and my brothers? And looking around at those who sat around him, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers, for whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. Now, it may not seem very important to you, but in the whole process of this, we are introduced into something that may not be as familiar to some of you. If you, for instance, grew up in a Roman Catholic context, you would understand that they officially believe that Jesus did not have any brothers or sisters, that Mary uh, sort of was a perpetual virgin and never had any children after that because of her exclusive uniqueness in bearing Christ into this world. Uh, texts like this challenge this. There are individuals who will say, well, when it talks about brothers and sisters, it's really referring possibly to Joseph having a a marriage either before or after Mary, and these are stepbrothers. Or there there is often the reference to say these are probably relatives, like cousins and those kinds of things, although the Greek text has very clear terms to refer to cousins and other individuals, so that's unlikely. That's pushing the exegesis a little bit. I believe uh, that the text is pretty clear that Jesus, Mary, and Joseph uh, had other children. And uh, if you look at these texts, you will discover that well, Joseph isn't mentioned here, and many people assume at this point, as they look at the evidence, that it's he's possibly died. Uh, They can't prove that, but that's one of the assumptions that happens in this particular case because he's not with them. Uh, There's other speculations about what could or could not have happened, but we know that certainly Mary is here, and then there's a reference to brothers. Um, the, the, The point being is that Jesus, I believe, had an earthly family. He had brothers, if we go back into Mark chapter two, you'll discover that there was a struggle with him doing all this ministry. I'm sure that his brothers would have labeled him with a God complex because he was kind of acting that way. And uh, they struggled with that. I, I, I'm sure you would struggle if your sibling or your spouse started claiming to be God. Uh, you would have some skepticism about that because That's just the way we would be. That's too much for us to handle. But in in all of this, we discover that there is now a family dynamic going on in Jesus' ministry that seems to come to the forefront. It's this idea that his family uh, seems to have expressed some really discontent in previous verses. In fact, the text that we have dealt with in the past Is that when the crowd was gathering around him, they couldn't even eat, and his family actually went out to try to seize him. The word is used often to arrest somebody, and that they were going to take him away because the verbiage that was going on is that this Jesus is out of his mind. And it seems to be coming from his own family. The, The struggle with that is that now Jesus is dealing with his family being on the front lines of what he's doing, and whether they are accepting it or rejecting it is speculative in some respects but there seems to be in the context a sense that at least his brothers, I have a hard time thinking Mary struggled with this as much because she had divine revelation at the conception of Jesus that gave her insight that would be hard for her to transmit to her family but the brothers are probably kind of like, look, we're tired of this Jesus acting like he's God, like he's got something special other than the rest of us. And so you could understand the frustration of his brothers trying to deal with this Jesus who's doing miracles, he's kind of Mary's favorite son, as uh, they would probably consider it, and he's doing this ministry and attracting the crowds. In all of this, we discover the reality of how important family is. Families can be a very powerful influence in our family to make us who we are. And if you're fortunate enough to grow up in a really healthy family, there is reason to give great weight to the reality of the fact that whether you like everything your parents did or not or whatever, there would have been a whole lot worse and I might be a very different person apart from their influence. We can always have excuses and reasons to uh, be disillusioned with our parents and have a perspective that they uh, could have done things differently. But if we pause for a minute, and I do this even in my own life, I realize that the person I am has been tremendously influenced in a positive way by both my parents. And we discover, on the other hand, that families can be a place of extreme painful experiences. That people grow up in broken homes and dysfunctional situations. Mary and Joseph didn't live under the auspices of a really healthy situation. I mean, remember, Joseph was, going to, or Joseph was going to divorce her when he found out that she was pregnant because they hadn't come together yet. So it's sort of under this auspices that she had committed adultery or that she had been unfaithful to him, and so they lived with that hanging over their head, probably not only in their own life, but possibly in terms of the community. They had to flee and go to Egypt, and they had to sort of fend for themselves, and God made provisions for them, but they were always on the move. They would have made a good military family. You know, We're gonna send you down here, then you're gonna uproot you and go over here, and then you're going up to Nazareth. It would have been really unsettling for kids to grow up in that kind of environment. So there's lots of reasons to be frustrated with parents, and yet we're told that Mary and Joseph were godly individuals. But if you didn't grow up with that, Boy, just even simple things like understanding the father's love for us is a struggle because my dad was a jerk. My dad was abusive, there was drugs and other kinds of addictions that plagued our family and so I have very few good memories of growing up because of the condition of our home. We have traditional families, nuclear families, single parents, extended families, childless families, step families, grandparent families, divorced families, blended families. We've got every considerable version of family you can even think of, and then when you step into the world, they are dismantling and uh, redefining the whole idea of marriage all again, and family is a whole other aspect of life. And so the idea of even family is a difficult thing to get our arms around, is how much do I wanna be with them? We've got families that are deeply meshed together, that they basically can't live without each other. my son's married to a family that has Cuban and Lebanese descent and they love hanging out together. In fact, uh, Gabri, who is my son's wife, uh, they're living with her parents right now because of lots of different circumstances, but her aunt lives two doors down on the cross street so they're, you could hit it with a stone. And when they do things like, things like Christmas and Thanksgiving, they do it all together. Like This is what they do. And they love being together. And and so that has tremendous positive things until you marry into it and then it sort of becomes caught in a vortex of this culture that I'm not used to and I don't know how to handle it and I don't want to live my life caught up in their world sometimes, no matter how good it is. And so Jesus has this earthly family, we actually notice it again in Mark six, it talks about it again. Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, and brother of James and Joses and Judas and Simeon, or Simon, and are not his sisters here with us. Now I don't want to get into the weeds with that, but my point is I believe the scriptures are pretty strong about the idea that Jesus had literal earthly family. But he comes to him in this text when his family comes to seek him, and you can speculate all you want about what their motives is, I have a feeling it's kind of negative, at least from his brother's side, is that this guy's embarrassing us. Why is he everyone's favorite son? Why is he the popular one? And so they, I think they're trying, they don't go into the house, they don't try to join the group. They send a message because they're outside, withdrawn from Jesus' ministry, and they're saying, Listen, we need to talk to you. We need to have a discussion here because what you're doing is kind of messing up our family. You, you, you got all this attention, you're doing all this stuff, you don't really have time for us. Whatever the arguments happen to be, you could sort of see an impending sense of conflict. And Jesus seems to be spending more time with all these other people than he does with his own family. And so they they send this message into Jesus saying, listen, we need to talk. Can you get out here? And Jesus doesn't accommodate them, at least at this point in the narrative. He actually uses it as a teaching point. And he comes back and he simply says, who are my mother and my brothers? Now, I don't know, if, were, if they could, were in earshot of this, I, I think I'd be a little upset. Um, as you know, a couple weeks ago we went back to Vancouver to spend time with my mom, she's 91, and we took her on this uh, mountaineer train trip from Vancouver to Kamloops up to Jasper and then we shuttled down to Banff and got a great week together celebrating that. We always give my youngest brother um, a bad time because Mom was always talking about Mark. Uh, he was the president of Suncor Oil, he's not doing that anymore, but it, for us it was always like, he, Mom's always talking about Mark, he's so busy and he's got so many things to do and we're kinda like, yeah, well, we're busy too. Like you know, it, It's kind of a typical Mom thing that happens, you probably know this in one fashion or another, and so we're kinda like rolling our eyes and yep, yeah, yeah, he's busy, that's great. you know. Um, but we, we sometimes push back a little bit to say like, you do have two other sons, you know, that kind of thing. And, and as, as they work through this, his family seems kind of disconnected from his ministry and what he's doing. And Jesus then says, well, okay, who are really my mother and my brothers? And I, I, I think the brothers would have taken some offense to this. They're kind of like, what do you mean? Where is are his brothers, what are you talking about? And Jesus then makes a profound spiritual point by saying, listen, those of you around here that believe in me and those of you that are following me, you're my brothers and my sisters. You're my family. And Jesus does something here that might unsettle us a little bit, but he says, listen, ultimately what was, becomes really critical in terms of his mission is the family of God. Because earthly families have limitations. They may be wonderful, but we all know that we have family members that don't know Jesus, so the end of the journey comes at the end of this life. We have family members that we would love to have support us in terms of our faith and religion, but they're fairly hostile and antagonistic to it. We know the rub that happens in families because we're not on the same page. And so when we come into this environment, Jesus is saying, listen, the people who are really my family are those who are sitting right in front of me. They're not blood family, they're not my earthly family, but this is part of what God's family is about. And he defines that in a very particular way. He comes back and he says, it's those who do the will of God that are really part of the family of God. And it says something to us that is rather interesting, and it's kind of the primary principle that he's talking about here, is that the nature of those who are part of God's family are those who do his will. Now, we have to remind ourselves that nobody, no matter which household you're born into, and I suspect this would have been a big tension in Jesus' family, is that you can't be born into the right family and just assume that you're going to heaven. I mean, I don't know about you, but I think Jesus' brothers and sisters could easily, if we project them into a New Testament context and end times eschatological type reality of standing before God saying, hey, we knew Jesus, we grew up with him. And I think God's response is, but did you really believe in him? Did you really have the kind of faith that was willing to step out of the family ties and realize that he's your savior, not just your brother? And at the, at the heart of this whole element is that we've got to remind ourselves that not everybody, in fact nobody, is automatically belonging to God's family. It doesn't matter whether they grew up in church or they've gone through certain religious experiences. The reality of it is that it's only those who do the will of God that are part of God's family. And the question obviously comes to the surface is, what does that mean to do the will of God? Well, I believe it starts with the gospel. And Jesus has already hinted in that in the first chapters of Mark. For instance, in Mark 2, verse 5, he has uh, th- this encounter with the paralytic, you know, the four friends who brought their friend before Jesus, and when they lower him down, he says, well, your sins are forgiven you. And so Jesus gives an insight into the, the that he, as he says, verse 10, that he has the authority to forgive sins. That's, that's forefront in his ministry, not just fixed temporal circumstances like the paralytic's health, although Jesus does that to demonstrate his authority to something even more significant. But Jesus came not just to put patchwork on people's bodies or people's families. He came because human beings are sinful. Unless we come to the reality of that and are willing, as it were, to repent and believe in Jesus and his work that he did on the cross to pay for our judgment that we deserve, we will never become part of God's family. We can't earn it. We can't bribe God for it, we can't do enough good things to do it, we're not basically good enough to ever become part of God's family. The reality is is sin is the great obstacle that we can't deal with. And the scriptures require, even Jesus did, is repent and believe in the gospel. And so before we do anything, we need to realize that the beginning part of doing God's will means that every person has to come to the reality that they are outside of God's family. It doesn't matter whether you're born into a Christian family. It doesn't mean anything to, let's say, be in a church environment growing up. The issue comes down to have I truly put faith and trust in Christ for the forgiveness of sins so that he removes me from the wrath of God and gives me the righteousness of Christ so that I have a right standing before the Father and he accepts me, not because of his love, but because of the work of Christ and his grace. And that's where it begins. That's the start of doing the will of God. But the significance of doing his will is really on the whole idea of what I'll call godliness. It means those who are going to follow Jesus and be obedient to him. And I've used this framework before, and I'll do it again. It means I stop buying into my beliefs and how I think things should work, and I start adopting what God says I ought to believe. What I believe about him, what I believe about myself, Because one of the things that's true, at least in our journey at Oak Grove Church, is is in our discipleship process, one of the first things we deal with is our identity in Christ. And there are dozens and dozens of statements in the scriptures that talk about that we're loved and that we're forgiven. That we have our co-heirs with Christ. That our life is significant because of the Spirit of God dwelling in us. And yet there's all kinds of Christians that struggle with their sense of self worth and identity and, and, and there's all these things that we need to learn how to shed the way we have bought into lies about ourselves, whether it came from our parents or our siblings or our so called friends and we start learning to believe what God says is true about our life not to become arrogant but to become spiritually healthy. We have to adopt the values that God says is true. And so when Jesus is teaching his men and training his disciples, he's saying, listen, you need to follow me. This isn't about following a pastor or following other people. It's following Jesus. And there's all kinds of people who claim to know Jesus but don't have any interest in following him. They don't want to make any sacrifices. If it's too inconvenient, they won't do it. They they really don't value Jesus. They value the idea that they're going to heaven, but past that, there's a lot of Christians who struggle with, do I really value Christ and willing to follow him every day? We could do this a lot. We could talk about our priorities in life. We could talk about our behaviors and our habits and our character. There's all kinds of things we can talk about, but the idea of doing the will of God means I'm willing to surrender to God and follow Jesus to adopt his way of living And allow the scriptures to teach me the way I need to think and choose and prioritize my life. We will always struggle with that because we become our own worst enemies. We always are getting in our way wanting to do something that we think is more spectacular. And so at the heart of this is doing God's will. So I'll say this and I don't mean it to sound rude. But the idea is uh, when we talk about these kind of things people say well I know that. And I often tell people, I don't care what you know, what does this look like in your life? I mean, Christians are doing the, well, I know that. And the moment you say, well, okay, so you know that, tell me what it looks like in your life, that's when the real conversation starts, or usually stops, because people know the information, they often have no idea how this translates into real life. And so the idea here now becomes the principle of God's family. And here's the principle I want you to take from here, if nothing else. Only those who do the will of God are part of God's family. Only those who are part of God's family do the will of God. I mean, that's really kind of the statement that Jesus is saying. Those who are my brothers and sisters, those who are part of my family, are those who do the will of God. He doesn't go into a lot of other exegesis and explanations about all the other things that could accompany that, but he simply gets it down to, if you do my will, God's will, you're part of my family. Now, it's not a works-oriented type thing. That's a reflection of coming to the reality that I need to trust Christ first. The people that are sitting there are because they believe in him. There might be some curious people trying to learn about him, But the simple fact of the matter is that a person who's truly part of God's family is deeply committed to knowing and doing God's will. And if that's not of any interest to you, I think you ought to sort of take pause and look at yourself in the mirror of God's word and say, okay, do I really know him? Because it's easy to make claims that I know Jesus. It's very different that I'm gonna allow that to affect the way I choose to live life. And so... Doing God's will is not just spiritual status or social status. It has to be the reality of the way we live every day. Do we all struggle with it? Yeah, we don't do it perfectly. But if we don't have a heart that's willing to be open to make adjustments as much as what God puts on our heart. Now, some people say, well, you know, I don't read his word, so nothing ever, he never convicts me of anything. Well, that could be a problem too, but. But there's something else that goes on here that I think often speaks into where churches are at, and I've seen this in a lot of churches. In fact, I've seen it in most churches. And that's the reality of the conflict between my earthly family and God's family, or to put it in our language, between my earthly family and church family. I don't know if you've ever struggled with this, but it usually comes up because the conflict is between Jesus' earthly family and God's family. It's about caring for my earthly family and looking after them, realizing that's part of my ministry and being involved in serving God's family. We would often look at it in terms of being involved in church and program and ministries and those things. That's sort of the concrete way that it often is expressed but the issue is there's no distinction between the idea of my earthly family and God's family if I'm committed to doing God's will in everything that I do. I mean, that's the, that's the heartbeat of it. With my earthly family, I need to be doing what God's will says I ought to do in relationship to my family. And that, but the Bible also speaks pretty strongly that I need to be involved with God's family. That's why Livestream is, in some ways, a great gift, but it's a big detriment. It's pretty hard to be involved with God's family if I, all I do is watch at home. If that's the total of my commitment. I don't think there's many people out there that do that, but I think there's some. That the idea of commitment is I just sort of watch, but not involved. There's a conflict between prioritizing my earthly family and prioritizing God's family. The conflict of not getting support from earthly family and having others love you in your ministry. You ever feel the tension? Conflict of making time for my earthly family and making time to be appropriately involved in serving with God's family, and for Jesus, these are sort of coming to a head, where his family's coming to him and saying, listen, wait a minute, we need to talk to you, and you need to come back to us, we're not coming to you. You ever heard that attention? Yeah, you're doing your ministry and that's all great and so on and so forth, but like, we need to talk to you, we got some stuff we have to discuss. And Jesus, in this particular narrative, at this particular time, doesn't give in to that. But let me mention a couple of things about the reality of family, God's family, and even the nature of just our human families. The the one that we have to do is discover the opportunity of ministry and mission. Because one of the things we'll discover is the power of God's family, if they can get together and have a sense of unity and support and encouragement, there's literally very few things that can't be accomplished when you have that kind of family. OGC, Oak Grove Church, came into existence back in a merger between Robbinsdale and Valley Baptist back in the late 1900s, 1998, 99, somewhere in there. And they forged this together and they ended up buying this building, which not, wasn't this building, the gym wasn't here, the auditorium wasn't here. It was a dilapidated school that had been abandoned because they redrew the school division lines and this one got left out in the cold. And so I remember listening to uh, Norm and Bob talk about, yeah, when we came in here, we had 300 windows we had to fix. They had to take out second mortgages on their homes in order to pay for the building and to get it started. They're the ones that put the effort and the time and the energy and the resources that, to make all of this possible. And They made incredible sacrifices and invested massive amounts of time in terms of cleaning it up and work days and getting it on its feet. And we're here because of the efforts that they made and the sacrifices that they made. But I would dare say that there's times, although it was a different generation, that like if dad's involved, mom's involved too. They, that's just what they did. And so they poured enormous amounts of times into this and there was, we're here because of their efforts. And so it's amazing to look back on our history and see the incredible thing that a people, the family of God, and families, earthly families together, poured into a place so that we could have what we have today. And so the power of God's family, both earthly families and God's family, is astounding. Camp Lebanon, our camp up north, is the same kind of product of individuals who are willing to take weekend after weekend after weekend to go up and help build cabins and build the the docks and get everything organized, sacrificing time and money to make all those things happen. And when a lot of our other regions are selling off their camps because of the financial burden, this bill abler and the, the camp crew have diversified their funding to such an extent that we don't have to sell it to survive, it's flourishing. In fact, they a couple, few weeks ago, I don't know, a couple weeks ago, a month ago, I don't know, maybe it was last year, I went up for their 75th anniversary It was just a couple weeks ago. I'm just blanking, that's all. But I went up there to celebrate their 75th anniversary and they broke ground to build a two and a half million dollar gym. God's just richly blessed. So the power of family can be absolutely amazing. But there's also a problem with family. And Jesus might be facing it a little bit in the narrative of this text, but you notice that Jesus doesn't give any special privilege to his family when he showed up. He didn't stop everything and said, hey, listen, can you guys clear out? I want to bring my family in here. They want to sit here. They may not want to. It didn't sound like they wanted to. They're staying outside and saying, look, you need to stop what you're doing. We need to talk. But Jesus didn't grant them any special privileges. He didn't stop teaching. In fact, he used it as a teaching point. And it reminds me that sometimes in churches, we run into this conflict between our earthly family and God's family. There are some people in life who have abandoned their earthly families to do the work of ministry. They become a workaholic. Back when I was growing up, it was Sunday, Sunday night, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday morning. I mean, people just got so absorbed in doing church activities and programs that their spouses and their families often felt abandoned because this is the only thing that mattered. At least that's the way it felt. On the other hand, there's some families that have experienced that and now they are absolutely ferocious about protecting their earthly family. And so we can attend church on Sunday, but we're not getting involved in anything else because we want our time free. We've got things that we want to do as a family and so we're going to make time on the weekends and we're we're not going to commit to things that's going to occupy our weekends because we're protecting our family. Ever had that dilemma? And so we've moved from the generations way back when to that literally sacrificed everything in order to be involved in church ministry to now, if you can get people to show up twice a month, that's a victory. Because times have changed. And, and church at times for many people just doesn't have the value anymore. It's an extracurricular activity that I do, but there are other things that are way more important. And believe me, it's not about showing up on Sunday. It's about being on mission and following Jesus everywhere we go, whether it's our families at home, our neighborhoods, the workplace, the school that we're in. That's what doing God's will, God's family does God's will regardless of where they're at. And part of our new vision frame is the idea that we want our spiritual impact and our spiritual health to be measured more by our impact outside these walls than even what we do inside these walls. But, the, but there is a danger that I've seen in churches that every church, I think, gets a taste of, and it's the problem of nepotism. See, it's amazing to have core families that do church plants and get things started, but if they're here long enough, they become sort of the core group that get their whole family involved in some of these things, and then there's always a danger that, of this nepotism. Nepotism is uh, not illegal. I mean, unless you deal with U.S government and public service, there's anti-nepotism laws that say that people in public office can't promote family or or promote people that are family members because it's a conflict of interest. The private sector doesn't have that as much, although most companies are pretty aware of the fact that they've gotta be careful about promoting family and individuals in that context. The one place that sometimes we struggle with the most is the church. Because the power of family usually is the momentum that gets things built and moving. The power of individual earthly families is sometimes amazing, because they're the ones that put the time and the energy, they have the servant's heart, they make things happen, and they are just a, a force of God's spirit to grow things and make it happen. But the danger often becomes is, well, the only people who can do this right is our family. Uh, I've seen this happen in a number of churches and every church I think has to deal with this in some. If you've got a core group of families that start a church, they're the ones that care the most about this thing working. And so they've got their fingers in everything but at some point the danger is are they the only ones that can make it happen? I have uh, talked to a uh, the idea of nepotism, if you don't, aren't familiar with the term, is about the problem of showing favoritism to acquaintance, acquaintances or family members. And sometimes we see this in the church. It, the, the, the side effect of this is entitlement. That pe- there's some people that often in churches feel like they have special privileges to do things that most other people wouldn't even begin to think that they can get away with. And I've seen churches get deeply crippled by this kind of attitude. In fact, I, uh, as, as I coached a couple of churches, I've seen one church where, as I was coaching them, and I can't remember if I've mentioned this before, so I apologize if you've heard it, but they had a conflict with the pastor. The pastor ended up leaving, and, and I went up there one weekend to kind of coach them through, and I had one lady in a meeting make this statement. Our family started this church over 100 years ago, and the proof of it is that they had a care center right next door to the church building and they had a 104 year old grandmother sitting over there who could prove it. The next statement she said is, that's my pulpit. And the third statement she said to the pastor is, we pay your salary. Now I don't know if that's what you call nepotism but it comes pretty close in my books. That we not only started this and we're the ones that have put the most energy and time and resources, but we have the most say. This is our church. It belongs to us. And I think every church has to be concerned about those kinds of things. Because last time I checked, Jesus didn't put the church up for sale. He wasn't giving it away to any particular family. And yet every church has to sort of deal with this. I dealt with another church that had leaders in key leadership positions that had been the same leaders they'd had for over 20 years. And so what happens is they've got stuck trying to protect the past and the tradition, and they'd never raised up any new leaders to speak into the reality of where they're going and where God wanted them to go. And so everything was still about what was going on 30 years ago. Can we protect this? Can we not do it this way? And there's a certain entitlement and nepotism almost that goes on in that environment because we're here to protect what we've built, not what Jesus wants to do. And I've seen so many churches struggle because of this whole issue of nepotism. My earthly family is involved in the church that I go to and we control certain elements of ministry and and we deserve to be able to control that and have the most say about it. It doesn't matter whether there's leaders over them or not. And that inevitably becomes a problem. Because the issue here is what Jesus said is is that God's family is interested in doing the will of God, not my will or your will or the pastoral will or the elders' will, but God's will. That the most highest priority that we have is knowing the mind of Christ and pursuing that rigorously, not about protecting our own personal inferences and priorities. Because anything short of that is a death sentence for a church. And I don't know how you flesh into this, being that Grant and I are from Canada. We didn't grow up here. But we did grow up in churches that had key families to it. That is can be also really good and powerful, but it also creates a problem of nepotism. And so Jesus makes statements in the scriptures, that the unity of not only our earthly family is critical for the health of our earthly family, but it's also critical for God's family. That that, that the more that there's unity and harmony and a commitment to doing God's will, not our own personal preferences, is absolutely critical to the health and the flourishing of a church. Jesus said in John 17, I do not ask for those only, but... Also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you. And they may also be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. 1 Corinthians 12, God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the parts that lacked it, that there may be no division in the body, but the members have the same care for one another. So the whole point is, is that in God's family, we have to treat each other like family in the most positive way you can think about that. And the way that I encourage you to think about it is not your own earthly family, but what the scriptures say. Colossians 3, here there is no Greek nor Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. That's true for every person, who does the will of God, who's part of God's family. Compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord forgives you, so also you must forgive. See, the church ought to be, in a sense, a home for the homeless. The church, in many ways, ought to be a family for those who are single parents. The church ought to be this environment where people find family that they don't have. That when their earthly families have disintegrated and estranged, the church ought to be this new godly family that comes from God where we have the same concern for one another. Is that always easy? No. Of course not, because we're different. We're Canadians. You're Americans. Works okay so far, we appreciate that. But we have to be careful that in the context of all of this, there's always this juggling act that we have between our earthly families and God's family. And I think Jesus says those who do the will of God, both in their earthly family and for God's family, are the ones that really become, are part of my family. And I, I just want to continue to encourage you that God doesn't want us to be spectators in this environment of God's family. He doesn't want you to abandon or neglect your earthly family, but he doesn't want you to be spectators. He doesn't want God's family to be fourth or fifth on the list in terms of values. Do you know what your gifts are? Do you, do you I, I don't know if I like the word volunteer, but are, are you involved in making a difference in someone else's life? Have you considered being a disciple that's going to invest and encourage others and be encouraged by them? Are you helping in children's ministry? Are you helping with the youth or young adults? Are you working and helping with our seniors? The model of Jesus is Philippians chapter two, and I won't go through it all, but there was three words that I used to describe the model of the gospel in Jesus' life. Starts in heaven where he surrenders, it tells us that he emptied himself. He did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped. What that means is that Jesus surrendered all the privileges and all the rights and the freedoms and the entitlements that he had in the the eternal fellowship of the Godhead. He released all those in order to become the servant that was doing the will of God to carry out the mission of the gospel. So he surrendered those things and I get how difficult it is in our world. We're all about my personal preferences, and my privileges, and my freedoms, and my rights. Those are excruciatingly difficult for us to sacrifice because we like our time, and our space, and our family, and all the things that we wanna do. But at the same time, Jesus says, I, need, I don't need volunteers, I need servants who are willing to do God's will because that's the true mark of someone who belongs to my family. And it's Jesus made the ultimate sacrifice. He shared his life and sacrificed it for others. There's no way you can do God's will without making some sacrifices. And yet we live in an age where Christianity is being built around, I'll I'll do things when it's convenient, but I, you know, past that, we've got other things. And I get the struggle, don't worry, I, I, (laughs) I have, Understand it as much as any of you. But is it anywhere Christ at the center of those things? And are you doing God's will truly in your family and in the family of God? Because Jesus says, listen, ultimately, the one that's going to last forever is the family of God. We've got to figure out what that looks like in terms of my own life and my own commitment to following Jesus. Let's pray. Father, you know, it's interesting to look at a text where Jesus has to deal with his earthly family and his ministry and mission. In fact, those who are part of your family. We experience it, but we don't know really that the scriptures speak to it. And I know as I rummage my heart through this particular text, it's easy to start, if at least being honest, to realize that sometimes these things are out of whack. We have good intentions, but often we get overwhelmed by our own choices to keep our lives so frenetically busy that we don't have time for certain things. And I pray, Father, that whatever you're speaking to in our own hearts, that we would understand that Jesus pointed out that one of the great privileges is that you allow us to step into the family of God, not based on our works or our good deeds, but because of our faith in Christ. We don't earn it. We don't deserve it. But it gives us an whole aspect of family that maybe we haven't had in our own earthly families. For those of us that grew up with pretty healthy, strong families, we understand the power of what family can be. I pray, Father, that we would continue to not front our own personal will, but that we would be radically committed to knowing the mind of Christ and doing your will in this church for this body of believers as we continue to step into the future. Realign our heart. Help us to understand what you want us to believe, what you want us to value, what our priorities ought to be, and be submissive to one another in the fear of Christ so that we might have this kind of unity that allows the Spirit of God to flourish and help us to become everything that you desire us to be for your glory and your namesake. In Christ's name, amen.